We'll say happy December to you. Merry Christmas. Um, I hope that you are entering this month with some joy, some excitement, because um, it's, a, it's a good month. It's a good time to be alive. Uh, my name is Kyle. I serve as the lead pastor here. I want to say thank you for being here today. If you have your Bibles with you, you can kind of open to two places. Um, 2 Corinthians 4 is where I'll start. We'll uh, read several verses in the first few chapters of Genesis as well, Genesis 1 through 3. Uh, I'll be hitting some different verses there here in a moment also. So maybe 2 Corinthians 4 and Genesis 1 would be a good place to start. Um, as you're doing that, I just want to talk to you about our, uh, this series Advent for a moment. Advent uh, just simply means coming. Uh, it's, it's a way of describing something has come, is coming, uh, and so as we think about Advent, uh, we think about one, on one hand, we think about the first Advent, right? We think about the Advent of Christ and His initial coming to this earth, uh, His incarnation, being born of a virgin, Mary, uh, living a sinless life, dying on a cross for our sins, raising, being raised to, to life on the third day, and now He resides in heaven as King of kings, Lord of lords, and we await now a second advent, a time where Christ will descend to the earth once again, but this time uh, it won't be as a babe in a manger, it will be as the King of kings and the Lord of lords, the one who has triumphed over death and hell and the grave, the one who will come to judge both the living and the dead. And all of those who are found outside of faith, outside of Christ, those who are found unbelieving will be condemned. And all of those who are found believing in Christ, trusting in Him for their salvation, looking only to Christ, they will be uh, rewarded with eternal life. And so we await... That we are caught in between um, the first and second comings of Christ. And so, Advent, in one way, um, it means coming, but we celebrate Advent because we're waiting. <laughs> Does that make sense? We are waiting on the return of Christ. And so, Advent is a time that is set aside on a church calendar each year for the purpose of reflecting on the first coming of Christ while we look to the second coming of Christ. And so today I just want to look at, in the Scriptures, creation and the fall of man and salvation through the gospel of Christ. We are going to look at light and darkness. We're going to see the, um, the, the structure of those things, and why do we live in a world that is marked by such grave darkness, and yet we are able to see at times great light? What what's got us here? I think most of us are probably, as Christians, are aware of the fall of man, aware of what things were like, and then the fall happens, and now the gospel saves. But how does that inform the way we live each day? And so. Um, if you would, would you stand with me as we read 2 Corinthians 4? I'm just going to read verses 1 through 6. Uh, when I finish that reading, I'll say, this is the word of the Lord, and I would ask that you respond, thanks be to God. So let's read 2 Corinthians 4, 1 through 6. Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose hearts, but we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's Word. But by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, 
with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let me pray, and then you can be seated. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We ask that you be with us now as we open it up, as we have read from it. Lord, would you open our hearts and minds to see Christ today, to see your word, to understand the gospel. Uh, Lord, I ask for your strength today. I ask that you help me uh, to proclaim um, Christ today. As Paul says, here it is not myself that I hope to proclaim today, but I hope to proclaim the glory of Christ. And so, Lord, help us to see that today. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. You may have a seat. In 2 Corinthians 4, uh, Paul is explaining his ministry. Um, the, the book begins with encouragement for uh, suffering. Uh, there's a lot of suffering that's been going on. It, it uh, talks about, uh, Paul gets into chapter 3, he talks about how we're ministers of a new covenant. And what he's laying out is the, the new covenant of grace received in Christ versus that covenant of works, we might call it, that you see in the Old Testament where you had to abide by the law. There were some opponents to this message in the early church, uh, some Jews who wanted to keep things the way they were, uh, largely because the way they were was an easier way to control people, just to be frank. Uh, there was a lot of power uh, that these early Jews held and so there were Jews, and then there were Judaizers also who would just say, well, let's mix some of the things to appease the Jews as well as Christians. And so, you know, they would try to institute things like circumcision and uh, certain days that you would observe and things like that. And here what Paul's saying is, is the ministry that we've received is a, is a ministry by the mercy of God. That This ministry has come to us because of the grace and the mercy of the Lord. He has saved us. He has given us this ministry uh, in which we preach. And then in chapter 5, he's going to go on to say uh, that this ministry we have is a ministry of reconciliation. And this ministry of reconciliation is a ministry not just that's ours, but it's the ministry of all believers, that we would preach and proclaim peace with God through Jesus Christ alone. And that as a result of that, and, uh, and later in 5.17, he's going to say that Old, people who believe, old man passes away, behold, all things become new. And so there's a new creation work that takes place. And that's what Paul's getting at here as he directly relates the gospel to the same God who said, let there be light. And there was light. He's saying that that creation work, the very first words, I love that he brings up the very first words of God in our Bibles in Genesis chapter 1, verse 3, where God says, let there be light. It's creation work. It's a work that only God can accomplish. You and I cannot say to the darkness, let there be light and there be light, unless your home is programmed to your voice and yada, yada, but that's not the same thing, right? That doesn't count. We don't think you're powerful because your, you know, your Amazon device will help turn your lights on for you, right? So, but what God did is He calls light into being out of nothing. We read there that the earth is formless and void, that it's dark, and He says, let there be light, and there was light. And the amazing thing about that is it's not till a couple of days later that He creates the sun, the moon, and the stars, and so light was just light. And he separates the light from the darkness, and he calls the light day and the darkness night. And then he creates the lights that we see in the heavens today to signify those things. But what Paul is saying here is he's saying this ministry has come to us. We preach a gospel that saves sinners from their sins. We, we preach a gospel that brings new life to those who are damned to hell otherwise. We preach a gospel that redeems sinners from the curse of the law 
and gives them life in Christ Jesus. And we do this not because we're preaching ourselves. We do this because God has saved us and given us this ministry of mercy. He's been merciful to us, right? And then he says, we don't preach this message with cunning. You know, there, there, was, um, there is today even people who want to preach the message with cunning. They want to do what they can to try to make it more memorable or more meaningful. He says, we, we've renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's Word. And so Paul's saying, listen, we preach the unadulterated gospel of Jesus Christ and Him crucified and nothing else. And it's by this word that God will, as He said, let there be light, He will say, let there be the light of Christ and the gospel shine forth in their hearts. God will do that through His word. It'll be nothing else. He's not saying we're going to, Paul's clearly saying we're not adding anything else to this. We're not adding works to it. We're not adding, um, you know, you name it. All right. We're not, we're not adding anything to this. We're going to preach Christ and Him crucified. And so he deals with the reality, though, in saying that, that the gospel is veiled for some. He says, and even if our gospel is veiled, a topic that he picked up on in chapter 3, um, and he's just returning to it here. He says, even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel, the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. And so Paul acknowledges, look, we preach this gospel, and we know that this gospel is powerful to save. In Romans 1, chapter 16, Paul writes very clearly, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation. And so he deals with this, that there are times where you will preach the gospel and it will fall on deaf ears. People who are blinded by the God of this world will not be able to see it. And yet for others... The same God who said, let light shine out of the darkness has shown in our hearts, he says, to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And so for others, what? The veil is removed and they are now able to behold Christ. Something he literally says in 3.18, he says, we all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. So in saying the work of unveiling a heart, the work of unveiling our eyes to be able to see Christ comes from the Spirit of God. It happens according to the power of God. It happens because of His Word. Amen? And so with this, Paul announces that salvation is a creation work. The sinner becomes a new creation by the saving power of God through Jesus Christ. In this, we see the redemption of sinners. We have the beginnings of the restoration for what the fall of mankind has caused in the world. And so let's go back to the beginning in our Bibles and let's look and see in Genesis chapter 1. Verse 1, we read this. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Sorry, I know it's like page one, but I didn't give you any time to get there, did I? Let me give you a second, and then we'll do it again. Genesis 1, verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness He called night. And there was evening, and there was morning the first day. And so you see this go on for the next five days, 
God speaking, something coming into being. And then he ends with, it is good. On day six, he creates living creatures. And with those living creatures, he creates humans. And in verse 26, we read this, Genesis 1, verse 26. Then God said, let us make man in our, own Im- or in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth and every tree with seed and its fruit, you shall have them for food. And every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food, and it was so. And then in verse 31, and God saw everything that he had made, so from day one through day six, and behold, it was very good. And there was morning, or there was evening, and there was morning the sixth day. And so God says, he looks at all of creation. A creation before the fall, a creation uh, in perfection, perfectly orchestrated according to the command of God, according to the Word of God. Everything has come into being. Everything has its sustenance. It has its life in the things that that are created around it. God has taken care of all things. And He looks at it and He says, it is very good. It is very good. One of the most beautiful things about this early creation for the man and the woman uh, whom he created, in chapter 2, you get a a zoomed-in look at creation. In chapter 2, verse 8, it says, And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. So the man whom God had created, the woman doesn't yet exist. Again, this is a zoomed-in view of what happened in chapter 1. So in chapter 1 we read that he created them male and female in the image of God. He created them. Um, In chapter 2 what you're getting is a play-by-play, all right? So he creates the man out of the dust of the ground, and then he takes him and he puts him in. I'm picking him up. (laughs) He takes him and he puts him into the garden. And this is a special habitat that the Lord had given to Adam. One, it was for fellowship. God has always meant for his people to dwell with him in his place. Always. And so he puts him here for There's fellowship, but then there's work to do. There's there's a creation uh, mandate that we saw a moment ago to be fruitful and multiply, to subdue the earth, to fill it, to exercise dominion. And so the man is placed into this garden to begin this work. Look at at verse 15 there in chapter 2. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. And so there's a covenant here that God has made now with Adam. He's taken him, he's put him into the garden, he's in his place. He's dwelling with the Lord, there's relationship here. And then there's, again, there's a command. One, the command has blessing. I've given you every tree with good fruit for you to eat. (laughs) But that tree, the tree of knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat of it. For the day that you do, you will surely die. And so Adam is placed in the garden to work it and keep it. 
To work it means to cultivate it, to till the ground, to spread the goodness of the garden into all the earth. What God wanted was for the garden, through the multiplication of the man, both his work and through his offspring, was to spread into all the earth. And that fruitfulness would have been enjoyed uh, across the globe had it worked out. But that command, right, that that covenant that God makes, the man's going to struggle with that. Look at verse 21. The Lord sees the man in the garden. He says it's not good that he should be alone. I'm going to make a helper fit for him. And so the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, he took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. There's a lot happening here. One of the things that's worth pointing out is just the the intimacy of the relationship that the man knew with the woman immediately. And Adam, what he does literally is he rest- he calls her woman, but he's restating his own name, man, in her name. And it's to declare the greatest amount of intimacy that he could think of. He knew that this, just like he says, this is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. And as a result, what we see is marriage is instituted. <laughs> a man shall leave his father and his mother, hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. This sermon's not about the cultural um, climate of today, but this text is where we begin with marriage. This text is why we believe that marriage is between one man and one woman, and that it's meant to be for life, Lord willing. Amen? And this is what we hold to. It's what we cling to. This is not us clinging to some ancient document that has no bearing on today. This is us clinging to nothing less than the command of God. But the command of God is always tied to His blessing. And if you'll live your life according to the commands of God, you will reap the blessings of God. If you'll live your life uh, opposite the commands of God, you will reap the condemnation of God. That's what this... That is what Advent teaches us. And so the man and the woman are here, and they're naked, and and they're not ashamed. Again, they they are physically naked, but the point stands that they are able to be who they truly are with one another and feel no shame. No shame. Because why? It's a perfect world. There's no sin. They haven't done anything wrong yet. There's no knowledge of good and evil. Why? Because they haven't yet eaten of it. And then in Genesis chapter 3, verse 1, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, But God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Now the serpent, as it says, is crafty. He's cunning. This is the kind of cunning that Paul's talking about we aren't using as we proclaim the gospel of Christ. The the serpent takes the word of God and totally twists it. He sounds like he knows what he's talking about. 
And so he's believable. But when you look at the content of what he's saying, he's getting it all wrong, purposefully so. He wants to trick Eve. And so he says that, listen, Eve, like the point of the command is to, to keep you down. <laughs> the point of the command is to keep you from knowing what real life is like. The point of the command is to keep you from being like God. But you can bypass all of that, Eve. You, can not, you don't have to live your life in submission to God. You can live your life in submission to yourself. You can be like God. The same temptation exists today in all of our temptations, does it not? This is, this is the pride of life being presented to Eve. You can be your own God. You can have your own truth. You can know your own way. You can pave your own path. You can be an individualist. It's all yours if you'll just go eat of that fruit. The problem was is that Eve would not know good and evil in the way that God knows good and evil. You see, God knows good and evil, but God is not evil. Right? God is not evil. God is only ever good. He has purposes for things that are evil, but He is not evil Himself. He does not create evil. He's not, behind, uh, he's not behind evil in the world. But Eve was going to know good and evil experientially. She was going to now know evil because her heart was going to be full of evil. She's rebelling against God right here. Look at verses 6 and 7. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that this tree uh, was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was there with her, and he ate. And the eyes of both were opened. It's not that they were blind before. <laughs> and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. So at the end of chapter 2, it's a beautiful thing. They're naked and unashamed. Now, there's nakedness and there's shame. They're making coverings for themselves. The shame of sin, the shame of the knowledge of evil, experientially so, is now a burden on their conscience. It's a burden on their heart. They have rebelled against God. And so they can do whatever they can to hide it. They sow fig leaves. It's a start, I guess. It gets worse. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden, verse 8, in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord. Sorry, they hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me, and I ate. So you now you have the, the beginnings of, it's the fracture of all relationship, but you have blame here. There's a fracture in the relationship with God. I'm hiding from the one who created me now. I don't want to be in his presence. His presence is going to remind me that I've rebelled against him, that I've sinned against his commands, that I've decided that it's best for me to decide how I should live my life and not have to listen to God. And so that relationship is completely and utterly fractured. It's broken. And then there's a the relationship with my wife, which was once really great. We were able to be naked and unashamed with one another. We were able to, to know one another in these ways and, and not feel shame. I could know all of who she was, and she wasn't ashamed of that. She didn't have to hide herself. She didn't have to cover things up. 
Same for Adam. He wasn't having to be pretentious or to pretend that he was something that he wasn't. They were living in perfect harmony in the garden of God. But now blame creeps in. Adam blames his wife. His wife blames the serpent. Their relationship with God is broken. Look at it. You can see it in verses 14. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. You may circle verse 15 if you don't mind writing in your Bible. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Curse is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Mm. So again, we see the relationship with God is broken. The relationship with one another, broken. Creation, which was once meant to be only fruitful, is now going to be marked by thorns and thistles. You will work by the sweat of your brow. He was always going to work, right? He was put in the garden to work it and keep it. But now work is going to be much harder. Childbearing for women, probably always going to be painful, but now it's multiplied. The relationship of husband and wife. A woman will now desire to be the head of her home rather than to submit to her husband's leadership. The result of sin is destruction. It's decay and it's death for all. Creation has been subjected to darkness because of mankind's sin. Even now we feel this Every single day, the the destruction of the world affects our work, it affects our health, it affects our uh, well-being, it it affects our relationships, It, it affects absolutely everything. We don't work with ease anymore. We live, we work, we return to the dust. Relationships are broken. We are selfish. We operate with guilt and shame. We hurt one another. We lead others to sin against God at times. We follow others into their sin against God. We cover ourselves so that no one truly knows us. And that's no way, no way to have true, meaningful friendships or gospel-inspired communities or marriages. Quick note on marriages, you do see that the marriage relationship is fractured here. But I I have uh, been able to see this in many marriages and also experience it in my own marriage, that the gospel uh, redeems the, the brokenness that we bring into marriages. And after some years together, and maybe for others it's quicker, but it's taken Patricia and I up. A while, but I was thinking through this this week that uh, we are able to dwell together in marriage uh, unashamedly. There's nothing that she hides from me. There's nothing that I hide from her. Uh, we're able to walk together uh, in, in strong unity. And I've seen this in other marriages too. I just think it takes time. And so marriage is worth, I only say that to say marriage is worth fighting for. Gospel marriage, Christian marriage, committing yourself to Christ, building a relationship on that 
is worth the work. And it's work. You can ask Patricia, it's hard work being married to me. <laughs> and it's real easy work being married to her, I won't lie. But it's a lot of work. And it's, and it's totally worth it. Just kind of as a side there. Relationships are broken, but the gospel brings sweet redemption. Brings reconciliation where there was once nothing but brokenness. In Genesis 3, 22 through 24, um, we have an interaction here that's, that's really incredible. The Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. And then it, it just stops. It doesn't. It says, Therefore the Lord God sent him out from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. And he drove out the man, and at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed a cherubim and a flaming sword and turned every way that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. And so the thought actually ends there without completion, lest the man eat of the tree of life and become like one of us, live forever. The thought of mankind living forever in his brokenness was so disturbing to God that he doesn't even finish his thought. He just wastes no time in removing them from the garden so that it cannot happen. That's really incredible. There's so much that's happened in this passage that gives Adam and Eve a lot of hope. In Genesis 3.15, if if you've been coming here very long, you've heard me talk about this, but this is... uh, it's the, the proto-evangelium, which just simply means the first announcement of the good news. It's proto, right? First of its kind. It's the first announcement of good news. And God says to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. The rest of the Old Testament is about tracking the seed of the woman to Jesus Christ. Everything in your Old Testament screams, shouts with a loud voice. Sometimes it's louder than others. The name of Jesus Christ. The hope of Jesus Christ. The fact that one day there would come one who would crush the head of the serpent. And this is, in a moment, the light of the gospel of Christ outshining the darkness of mankind's sin. And you'll see this over and over again throughout the New Testament. We're going to look in the next couple of weeks, uh, we're just going to look at a couple of different prophecies that are pointing us to Christ, that are getting us there, that happen at different um, times in history according to Israel's life, you know, their life cycle. (laughs) But today I want you to see that the light of the gospel of Christ outshines the darkness of mankind's sin. Just as in 2 Corinthians 4, 6, we have here God speaking light into an otherwise very dark situation. The light of the gospel of Christ is shining here in the darkness. He is saying that God's promise here, and He's he's promising in a curse to the serpent, to, to Satan, He's promising in a curse to Satan something for the man and the woman. And we know that they take note of it because Adam calls his wife... I'll get to that in a moment. But God's promise is that a head crusher is coming. There's a bright, shining light of redemption in the midst of the darkness of mankind's sin. Things won't be broken forever. And and so we see this illustrated for us in Genesis 3, 21. It says, And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. He made for them garments of skin. In verse 20, we read this, The man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. Verse 21, And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. 
So a couple of things are happening here. One, the man calling his wife Eve now, because she is the mother of all living, is directly tied to the seed that's promised to come from her that will bring about life for mankind again. And so he's saying that she is the mother of all living. From her will come the one who will crush the serpent. It's incredible. And then in the very next verse, you have God doing something that is at the very least a foreshadowing of what the righteousness of Christ will mean for us. Before sending them out, he clothes them in animal skins. Now, to get these skins, an animal had to die, right? Death is now a part of the creative order or the brokenness of what was originally created, I should say. God not only makes a promise that the serpent will be crushed by the seed of the woman, but he foreshadows a clothing that will remove the shame of sin forever. And that clothing is the righteousness of Christ. Advent is not just about the glorious baby Jesus Christ coming into the world through a manger in Bethlehem. Advent is about the promise of God being fulfilled that I will send one through the woman who will crush the head of the serpent. A glorious Savior has been born. And the birth is wonderful. But this this babe in a manger was born to die, not to live. And he was born to die so that you might be reborn unto new life. A head crusher has come through the seed of Eve. Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of the long-awaited promise. The light shines in the darkness. The darkness will not overcome it. In 2 Corinthians 5.21, I mentioned Second uh, Corinthians 5, so this is just a chapter after the verses we've read already this morning. He made the one who did not know sin to be sin for us so that in Him, in Christ, we might become the righteousness of God. And so on the cross, Christ takes your sin on Himself. He is clothed with your sin there on the cross. And in His death, sin is dealt a death blow. The wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And so in His death, He takes on your sin. In His resurrection, death and sin are defeated. And all of those who will place their faith in Christ may now have their sin removed from them and be clothed in the righteousness of Christ. Just as Adam and Eve were clothed in an animal skin, just as Tanner earlier went down into the water and comes out, you and I, by belief in Christ, go down into the waters, we go down into the grave with Christ. By faith in Christ, we come out of the waters a new creation. Behold, all things have become new. Why? Because God made Him, Christ, who knew no sin, to be sin for us so that we might, in Christ, know no sin. (laughs) It's incredible. It's an exchange that we're utterly unworthy of. The perfect, righteous Son of God would come to earth to give up the glories of heaven, be numbered among men, to be like us in His flesh, yet 100% fully God, 100% fully man, and to die on a cross for our sins that we might be saved. It's incredible. And so Paul's reference to Genesis 1-3, where he says, the same God who spoke, let there be light, shows that the work of God in revealing the light of the gospel in our hearts is a new creational act. We have become new creations by the Word of God. It is the means by which the veil is removed from our eyes. It's the power of God 
It's the means by which we are transferred from darkness into His marvelous light. This new creational work is bound up with Christ's death and resurrection. Jesus, who is the light of the world, endures the power of darkness in order to absorb and to rescue us from eternal outer darkness. And it is through His being that He was the first to rise from the dead that He now proclaims light, as we read about in Acts 26. The result, as Christ is proclaiming light, is that our minds are no longer blinded by unbelief. The veil is removed. Instead, we are now creatures who are called to walk as children of light. You see, the gospel is the ultimate source of light, and it puts all of life into proper perspective. Because we view life according to how we are seen in the sight of God now, we are free to abandon underhanded ways. We don't have to be cunning anymore. We can abandon those ways in favor of a transparent, grace-dependent life. We don't have to walk in the darkness any longer. You see, all other ways of seeing, or so they may be called, only lead to blindness. Other light sources represent darkness. There is only one true light. Jesus Christ said Himself, I am the light of the world. I am the light of the world. But He warns that, we're warned in His Word that Satan comes as an angel of light, just as he did to Eve. Well, God didn't say that. He said this. Or God's not doing that because He wants you to do this. And so a life that is submitted to Christ submits itself to His Word, submits itself to His commands, and where it falls short, it is quick to repent and to exercise faith in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. You see, we celebrated today with Tanner his repentance and faith. But you and I, as you know, whether you've been following the Lord for 20 years, 30 years, 40 years, five years, five days, you never outgrow a life of repentance and faith. You never move beyond repentance. You never move re beyond needing to repent of your sins and exercise faith in Christ. This is why, again, in chapter 3, verse 18 of 2 Corinthians, he says, the veil's been removed, now we're beholding the glory of Christ. And as we behold Him, we are transformed from one degree of glory to another. Well, the transforming from one degree of glory to another happens as you see the perfection of Christ, you see your imperfections, and you say, oh, Lord, this cannot stay in me. I repent in dust. Help me to live a life worthy of your name. Give me new desires. And you just exercise faith. You proclaim in those moments, I am a sinner, but I praise you, Father, for the gift of your Son, Christ, who died for my sins, that I might dwell with you, I might live with you, that I might not have to run and hide myself with fig leaves, but I might step out into the open. I thank you, Father, that you pursue me as you pursued Adam. Help me to stand before you in the righteousness of Christ. And you just plead that. That's what faith is. It's pleading the righteousness of Christ. And so God graciously exposes this darkness. He empowers us to live as children of light who are being transformed by the work of the Spirit. So we have new life. We have eternal life in part, but we will know it in full at the second advent when Christ returns. And so we wait for it eagerly. We wait for it expectantly. We wait for it patiently. Even though the road seems long, even though 
the darkness seems really dark at times. You can say with the psalmist, in Psalm 139, David writes there, he says, the darkness is as light to you. And so even when you find yourself overwhelmed by darkness, maybe it's the darkness of suffering, the darkness of your sin, the darkness of some pain, you by faith can look to Christ and say, the darkness is as light to you. I'm submitting myself to you. Amen. And so that day when Christ returns, we get a glimpse of it in Revelation 21, 1 through 5. He says, then I saw, this is the Apostle John writing of his vision. He said, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. It's a, it's a restoration of Eden, but an, an even more glorious work of it. And then in verse 4, some of my personal favorite these days, my personal favorite words of the Lord, He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. I thought I was going to make it. And death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. He who is seated on the throne, Christ our Lord, says this. He says, Behold, I am making all things new. And also, he said, Oh man, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. Whew. <laughs> I made it. God once said of his world, behold, it is very good. And then mankind rebels. And he promises. He, he could have done away with the whole lot, but he promises to restore what has been broken. And then as we read about these last days, these, this ushering in of the new Jerusalem, which is just the bride of Christ, you don't have to get weird about that. It's, it's just the, the people of God adorned as a bride for Christ. It says in these last, what we read about it is in these last days, in the days of glory, he says, behold, I am making all things new. It's incredible the way the word of God has these bookends in it for us to so clearly see. And then in the very next chapter, the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb. Through the middle of the street of the city also, on either side of the river, the tree of life, with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations." No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and His servants will worship Him, and they will see His face, and His name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. It sounds like when God said, let there be light, and there was light. 
A few verses later, he says, Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life and they may enter the city by the gates. Outside are the dogs and the sorcerers and the sexually immoral and murderers and idolaters and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. Hmm. Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life. We wash our robes in the blood of the Lamb. Amen? We wash our robes by the one who was slain for our wickedness. We do that by placing our faith in the Lamb, by placing our faith faith in Christ, by fixing our gaze on Him, by His righteousness clothing us, we have been washed, and we will live forever with Him, just as God meant for it to be. I want to leave you today with this word from Christ in John 3, verses 18 through 21. Whoever believes in me is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and the people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For anyone, or sorry, for everyone who does the wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his work should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. Brothers and sisters, friends, visitors, I beg of you to come to the light of Christ today. Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, we praise you for your word today. We thank you the promises there in it. God, we thank you for the light of the gospel seen in the glory of Christ. Lord, I ask that you help us to believe in the one and only Son of God, to believe in your Son, Christ Jesus, with all of our heart and all of our mind and all of our strength, Help us to love Him. God, would you call us out of darkness and into your marvelous light? Help us to know a new life. Help us to be new creations. Remove the veil from our eyes that we might see Christ and see Him more clearly, more vividly. Lord, help us to desire Him more than we desire the things of this world. And Lord, as we grow weary in this world, as we get tired, as we endure suffering, as we experience pain, help us to see, Lord, that we are not without a Savior who endured all of those things for us in His incarnation. And there's no temptation that he did not himself uh, endure. There's no pain in which he cannot sympathize with us. We have a perfect high priest in heaven who we can approach today. And this high priest doesn't stand back behind some altar scowling at us. But he says to us, just as he said in Matthew 11, come to me, all of you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, for I'm gentle and lowly at heart. Father, would you help us to see the Savior this way? Help us to remove fig leaves, and blame, and pride. Help us to repent in dust and to hide ourselves behind the cross of Christ. Lord, would you also help us endure this race, to run it well, 
every day. To live every day as the servant who prepares his home for his master's return. Knowing that he could return any moment. Help us to live like that, Father. Help us to purge sin from our lives. Help us to not toy with it, to not play with it. Help us to take seriously the mortification of sin and purity. Lord, today, help us to be those who are found in the light, who love the light, who run to the light. And we need your power in us to do that. We need you, Father, the one who said, let there be light. We need you to do that in our hearts today. We're hopeless without you. And so we call on you now. In Christ's name I pray, amen.